Hey, it's Mark. I don't mean to sound ominous when I say this, but the holidays, they're upon us. It's an exciting time for many people in our audience, but it obviously carries a stress all its own. Given that tie-in, we're kicking off this episode with my colleague Jack O'Brien's interview with Dr. Gregory Scott Brown, a board-certified psychiatrist, mental health columnist for a number of mainstream publications, and author of the book, The Self-Healing Mind. According to Brown, whether we move calmly and confidently into this period and enjoy what it has to offer, or the holidays descend on us in their own anxiety-inducing way, is within our grasp. Brown also shares some keys for those in charge of brand messaging, and his take on our country's mental health misinformation illness is also worth hearing. As he tells Jack, perhaps more important than the advice itself is who and where we're getting that mental health advice from. And let's just hear with a health policy update. Hi, Mark. Today I'll be discussing the Food and Drug Administration's new pilot program that aims to boost development of rare disease treatments. And Jack, what's trending in healthcare this week? This week we're talking about Snapchat's Botox activation on AR lens, a controversial Tic Tac prescription medication travel hack on TikTok, and we remember former First Lady Rosalind Carter's mental health advocacy. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for being on the show with us here today. Obviously, our episode coinciding with the start of the holiday season, which is so exciting for a lot of people in our audience. But obviously, it's a stressful time of year. And I kind of wanted to frame our conversation around that, given your background. Can you talk to us maybe? uh, I know that everyone talks about how stressful the holiday season can be. But when you look at it from people dealing with mental health issues, what are some of the more misunderstood aspects of, of dealing with this time of year? First of all, Jack, thank you for having me. You know, I'm so happy to be here because this is a very important topic. So many of us are thinking about mental health, but we're not talking about it enough. And so I'm glad that we're having this conversation today. I'd say when it comes to seasonal depression, uh, one of the most uh, common misconceptions is that conceptions that it only happens during the fall and the winter months. It's more common during the fall and the winter months, but basically, what we're talking about here is depression that occurs with a seasonal pattern. So here in Texas, where I live, when uh, it's extremely hot outside during the summer, people are not getting outside uh, as much. I mean, we see seasonal depression that can happen even during the summer months. I know that if I was down in Texas, just knowing how I deal with the heat, that I would probably also be unhappy and not in the best mental state. I am curious, though, because you talked about the fact that the conversation has really been changing our mental health. And I can only say anecdotally over the past few years, certainly over the past decade, it seems like there's been a a greater destigmatization. How from your perspective? perspective as a professional, have you seen that take place in terms of people being more open in terms of talking about mental health and seeking professional help? That's an excellent question. So I think back to that Sports Illustrated article that Michael Phelps uh, actually talked about his struggles with depression and addiction. I want to say actually came out either 2015 or 2016. Um, And it's hard to actually delineate when a turning point was. But for me, I noticed that around that time, I was in my first year uh, of psychiatry residency training, and my, my patients were actually talking about how Phelps's story, coming out and sharing his story, inspired them to get mental health treatment or to start talking about uh, mental health a little bit more. And I've just noticed that since then, over the past you know eight years, decade or so, 
you see more celebrities, more public figures, more people in our personal lives actually talking about mental health and mental illness, you know, as they would talk about any other topic. And I think that's so good for not only mental health, but for public health as well. And to that end, I know that you'd highlight the fact that people have been more open, but, you know, from our audience, which are medical marketers for a lot of healthcare brands, I feel like there's also been brands talking about it more The kind of if you're not feeling well, you know, we're there for you. We have services and, and not always greeting everything like it's smiles and rainbows and unicorns. Can you talk about that from a brand perspective, too? Because I feel like a lot of people in our audience that their whole job is messaging could probably learn something in terms of, hey, your audience is not always going to be you know, happy all the time and you have to meet them where they are. Well, I mean, we know that there's a link between productivity and overall well-being. If we're not making time for self-care, we're not going to be as productive. I think brands and corporations are starting to pick up on that fact uh, as well. Um, You know, I run the Center for Green Psychiatry, which is uh, a small private practice. But, you know, I, I have people who work for me as well. And you know, part of that conversation when it comes to, you know, does this person want to, you know, to work with us is, you know, am I going to have time for self-care? Am I going to have time to protect my own mental health? So I think it's it's an important part of the conversation. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that we're having it. And I'm kind of curious on the self-care front. My colleague actually wrote this week. She covers a lot of like the TikTok and social media trends. And obviously there's a big overlap with mental health trends that we've seen in terms of people trying to find their own self-care fixes. But some of them can be, I don't want to say troubling in a way, but it it's not in complement to professional help. It's more of saying like, I'm going to do journaling or I'm going to do my own introspection, which is important, but it's not the same as talking to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I'm just kind of curious your thoughts and when you see some of these social media trends as professional, what that means for the mental health conversation. That is an amazing question. I'm so glad that you asked it because again, as we start to talk about mental health more, you do run that risk of people maybe reducing mental health and mental health advice to uh, things that wouldn't necessarily work in the, you know, severe cases of mental illness, right? And then you have people who, frankly, are not experts in the field who are able to amass these very large audiences on on TikTok or Instagram uh, or other social sites to spread this type of information. I, I think we have to be smart about where we're getting our advice, but not only that, you know, the person who's delivering the advice, you know, I'm, I'm on social media, I'm on Instagram, you know, and other, you know, other psychiatrists and, and experts are on there as well. But, you know, as a person who's, uh, you know, visiting these sites, we want to ask ourselves, is this a person who uh, is, is credentialed, right? Is, are you getting this advice from a psychologist or a medical doctor um, or, you know, a, a licensed therapist? Is this someone who has seen patients, right? You know, I think it makes sense that, you know, if we're getting information from a quote unquote expert, someone who's actually worked with, with patients. And, and the other thing that I would look for is any type of board certification, right? You know, there are people who are doing really good work uh, on TikTok and on Instagram and other social sites. You just have to be careful about screening them and vetting them uh, on our end before we actually take that advice. 
And could you expand on that a little bit? Because I've talked to a number of HCPs and even uh, marketing experts who talk about the value of HCPs being out there in social media. I've, uh, you know, I've seen your uh, appearances on PBS NewsHour and, and appearances in mainstream publications. There is a value to being out there and saying, like, I'm not just going to let a self-appointed, for your case, a self-appointed therapist or self-care expert dominate the conversation if they don't have the credentials or if they don't necessarily know what they're talking about. I just, I'm curious from your perspective of saying like, I know it's a lot of pressure. I know there's a lot of misinformation out there, but for my value, for my patients, I kind of have to be out there. That's why I'm on there. That's, that's why I'm on there. I mean, the thing is a lot of psychiatrists and mental health professionals will shy away from social media or even shy away from mainstream media. And that's okay. I mean, not everyone is comfortable being in front of a camera, but, you know, I think that people who are in this field almost owe it to not only our patients, but to the broader public to at least challenge some of the misinformation that we hear out there with evidence-based practices that, you know, we learn about when we, you know, spend years studying um, mental health in our various, uh, you know, specialties and from the expertise that we garner from working with patients. We'll get back to the conversation in a moment, but first I wanted to mention GoodRx. GoodRx HCP media solutions help pharma brands get to the point where prescription decisions are made. Find out how to put GoodRx in your 2024 HCP marketing plan. Visit GoodRx.com solutions today. I wanted to pivot the conversation back a little bit towards the time of year and the holiday season, the stresses that come into it. I watched your interview with PBS NewsHour last year, and you had made an interesting point where you had said that, one, there's no shame, obviously, to going and getting a therapy. I'm in therapy as well. I I want our audience to feel as open and comfortable with that. But you also said it's not a year-long or two-year-long commitment. If you're feeling that stress, if you feel you need to talk to somebody, it can be a week or two during this time of year. I was just hoping if you could kind of explain that to our audience, because I think that's kind of a different dynamic than people are used to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there is no shame. I went through a divorce last year, and I spent six months in therapy and I'm a therapist myself, right? And so I think it's important that we just, you know, get rid of this stigma that we assign to taking care of our mental health, right? And the other thing that, you know, I'd really want uh, people who are listening uh, to take home, you know, like you said, you know, just because you make an appointment with a therapist doesn't mean that you're quote unquote a mental health patient or quote unquote crazy or that you're going to have to do this for the rest of your life, right? I mean, sometimes you can think of of therapy kind of like an oil change for your car. I mean, just going in for a a tune-up every once in a while. And some people will spend years in therapy. Some people do therapy for a couple of months. But, you know, despite how long you spend in therapy, it can be beneficial and it can totally change your life. I like looking at that from a diagnostic perspective, obviously of the body, but then for a lot of people in our audience, maybe it is, you know, a car or something else where it's like, hey, you get routine care done all the time. Why not be able to do this for your mental health as well? I'm curious from from your perspective, like we said, there's been a lot of destigmatization, a lot of progress made on the mental health front. Obviously, there's still room for improvement. Where do you see the greatest need? I know that there is obviously a shortage of mental health professionals in this country compared to demand. There is still the stigma aspect out there. What, you know, what sticks out to you on that front? Well, I mean, if we're just looking at statistics here in the United States alone, there are over 140 suicides on average every single day. And 
the suicide rate among men is three to four times the rate that we see among women. So, I mean, there's just a huge opportunity there, I think, for us to really, you know, pay attention to how we're reaching not only men, women, you know, as well. So we can start to uh, chip away at those those suicide rates. Again, you know, these conversations are so uh, critically important, uh, not only for improving our lives, but in some cases, maybe even saving a life uh, as well. Yeah, and we've seen that from the Surgeon General, obviously highlighting the loneliness epidemic that this country is facing. I know here in New York, we just named Dr. Ruth, the famous Dr. Ruth as our loneliness ambassador. But it's something that a lot of people are dealing with, especially out of COVID, is this crisis of not having that connection, the digital divide and everything. And, you know, unfortunately, people either for reasons of being apathetic or just not having any resources to them, uh, take that option. So I appreciate you highlighting that and being on the show. I didn't know if there was anything else as it relates to this idea of, you know, the holidays are here. It can be a stressful time, but there is a before and after there is a, you can get through it. I just didn't know if there was any parting advice you wanted to give to our audience there. Well, I mean, it can be a stressful time talking about the holidays for, for anyone. I mean, gift giving, gift receiving can be stressful. Uh, something that my family adopted a few years ago is we just started playing uh, White Elephant uh, during the holidays rather than exchanging gifts, which took away so much of that that stress. So, you know, I think that people can be creative with it uh, and use the holidays as an opportunity to start start new traditions. I mean, it won't necessarily happen overnight, but, um, you know, it might end up improving your mental health. Uh, years down the line. Dr. Brown, I've really appreciated you being on here. I referenced it earlier that obviously I've seen you out and about on social media and on different media platforms. For those in our audience who may want to hear more of your insights, where can they find you? Uh, so the best place is my website, gregoryscottbrown.com. Uh, I'm also on social media, Gregory S. Brown, MD. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Dr. Brown. I wish you a happy holidays and we hope to connect with you sometime down the line. Happy holidays, Jack. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. As many in the pharma industry can attest, rare diseases are often difficult to investigate and treat and are riddled with numerous challenges, including difficulties in designing a clear clinical trial roadmap. Now the Food and Drug Administration is aiming to help address some of those challenges and boost the development of rare disease drugs by launching a new pilot program dubbed START, or Support for Clinical Trials Advancing Rare Disease Therapeutics. START will allow participating companies or sponsors to get guidance and advice from the FDA on addressing clinical development issues, from clinical study design to patient population. Eligible companies must have products that are seeking to treat rare neurodegenerative diseases and are currently in clinical trials under an Investigational New Drug Application, or IND. The ultimate goal, according to Peter Marks, director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, is to, quote, facilitate more efficient development of potentially life-saving therapies with rare disease indications and help sponsors generate high-quality, compelling data to support a future marketing application. This is the FDA's latest push in seeking to accelerate developing rare disease products. Recently, it also published a request for information asking stakeholders to send in feedback about what some of the biggest challenges and knowledge gaps are around cellular and gene therapies for rare diseases. 
Companies hoping to participate in the START program can submit applications starting on January 2nd through March 1st, 2024. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. Just missing the cut this week was the FTC's warning to two trade associations, as well as a dozen dietitians and online influencers about social media posts promoting aspartame or sugary products without disclosing that they had been paid. But first, we're going to start with the recent move by Botex Cosmetic to team up with Snapchat to create an immersive, gamified, augmented reality lens experience. From November 7th to November 14th, Snapchatters could play a game through the AR lens that encouraged them to make facial expressions associated with Botox indication areas. This was Snapchat AR lens first execution involving a medical aesthetics brand using its interactive functionality to educate consumers about a product's use. Now, given that we're recording this podcast on the fifth annual Botox Day, the initiative begs the question, is it okay for Snapchat to include a Botox filter on an app primarily used by kids, teens, and young adults? According to a report Snapchat commissioned from Global Web Index, the app reaches over 90% of 13 to 24-year-olds and 75% of 13 to 34-year-olds in over 20 countries. On the show, we've discussed numerous times how social media has proven to be detrimental to people's health and well-being, especially for young users. So I'm asking, is there a reason to look at Botox leveraging Snapchat's technological capabilities and massive youth audience to promote its product as worrisome? Could it have a negative downstream impact on how young people view themselves and consider their body image? And Lesh, I want to throw it over to you because you've done a lot of reporting, certainly about social media, but also the mental health crisis in this country. What are your thoughts on this partnership here? You know, it's an interesting one. Um, and it's not, you know, particularly new necessarily, um, because whether it's Botox or the various beauty filters on all of these social media platforms, like the famous bold glamour filter on TikTok that was getting a lot of attention recently, we know that some of these filters are starting to show a negative effect on people's mental health. Um, in one recent survey out of beauty and hairstyle app Style Street, 70% of respondents said, they think beauty beauty filters on these apps are negatively affecting people's self-esteem. And that's particularly felt high among Gen Zers, with 72% of them deeming beauty filters bad for their mental health. The survey also found that four in five respondents believe that beauty filters on social media apps have changed beauty standards. Um, so that we're really seeing this influence, you know, not just directly from Botox, but um, as a whole with a lot of these filters um, kind of creating these unrealistic beauty standards and people we've also been seeing a rise in cosmetic procedures in recent years um, with cosmetic surgeons noting people are coming into their offices trying to get TikTok or Instagram face basing their desires off what these filters are making their faces look like so the the moral question of whether Botox should be doing something like this you know is it's an interesting one but it's certainly not just Botox I guess that uh, is contributing to this Absolutely. And I want to bring Mark into the conversation and just note for our audience that I did reach out to Snapchat uh, through their PR team and to an executive directly, and they declined opportunities to comment for this. I, I am curious, Mark, because there is an argument that I think could be made on the counter side where it's like we're trying to educate consumers and we want them to have as much information about Botox or these procedures going into it. But again, when you have a, a youth base that's that big on your app, there does become some sort of responsibility, I imagine, 
of saying like, should this be in front of this audience, which is so impressionable, which has study after study, survey after survey, as Lesha mentioned, talked about how these standards do impact their own body image in a negative way, it seems. I think that uh, someone at the, in the Botox brand uh, should answer to that question, Jack. I think it's an excellent one that you bring up. They obviously are we're looking for a way to commemorate the uh, you know, Botox day um, and, and this, this drug, which kicked off the category, as they put it. And it, it seems like the, the choice of platform uh, has some serious uh, downsides to it, uh, give, given the large demographic of, of, of you know, young people on there and, and Talesh's point about how these kinds of filters um, detract from uh, people's uh, you know, self-body image. You know, in, in terms of another sort of wrinkle I'll bring up, I, I noticed, you know, in sort of parsing the press release about this, uh, that, uh, you know, they're, they're using a, a Snapchat AR lens here uh, for the activation, and they're allowing people to, um, you know, play this game that encourages them to make facial expressions associated with the Botox cosmetic indication areas. And they make the point that AR lenses historically have supported disease state awareness or included the brand's name, but not its specific use. And this kind of gets us into what in the trade they call reminder ads, uh, which are ads that give the drug's name, but not the drug's use. And the assumption behind reminder ads is that the audience knows what the drug is for and doesn't need to be told. But the caveat there is that a reminder ad does not contain any risk information about the drug because the ad doesn't discuss the condition being treated or how well it works. So that's all well and good if the drug is completely safe. We know all drugs have side effects, but some have boxed warnings. And uh, Botox has a, a warning about the distant spread of toxin effect, you know, where the effects of, of botulinum toxin could spread from the area of injection to other areas. So it does have some serious risks. And I'm not sure that I'm not an, I'm not a legal expert, but some someone might have an issue with using a, rem, a reminder ad or, you know, what is essentially a reminder ad in an immersive marketing experience. So uh, we'll, we'll watch this one. I look forward to hear what, what the brand uh, has to say, Jack. Yeah, I'll keep our audience in the loop if that comes to pass. For our next story, as Mark mentioned at the top, we are obviously entering the holiday season and Lesha has found a social media trend that is giving a little bit of concern to public health experts because I'm going to let you take it away, Lesha. There's no other way to describe it. Yeah, thanks, Jack. I stumbled upon a corner of TikTok called hashtag medication hack after reviewing a video with a hashtag that promises to be a tip for traveling with medicine, which is, you know, everyone's going to be traveling for the holidays. This might be top of mind for some people. Um, earlier this year, a TikTok user posted a video in which she displays a prescription pill bottle that instructs viewers to get a Tic Tac container pour the medication into the Tic Tac container and use that to travel with. Remove the Tic Tac label and take the lid off and add your medication. The text on the video, video reads, then just put the lid back on. Now you can dispense your medication and it's a lot smaller than the pill bottles. Just ask the pharmacist for an extra label. This may seem like an easy trick for when you're compartmentalizing items during travel, but some of the commenters began uh, raising some questions about this practice. And then later on, there were some pharma packaging experts who also raised concerns. Um, some noted that in many countries, you have to have the original packing and prescription of the medication. Others noted that some medication is light sensitive, hence those orange colored pharmacy pill bottles. And putting it into a Tic Tac container could be risky. Yet another points out that a child could think it's candy, deeming the suggestion very unsafe. 
quote, I work in a pharmacy and we are prohibited from dispensing a label for medications if it is not placed on a pharmacy bottle slash box, another commenter warns. But when you meander even deeper into hashtag medication hack, you quickly realize that there are far more questionable takes on medication tricks than simply Tic Tac containers. There are videos with thousands of likes that claim to know, quote, five tricks to make your pills kick in faster um, that involves poking holes in the pill before swallowing, swallowing it, claiming that will help it d- dissolve twice as fast. Then the person claims to lay down on your right side, which will make the pill fall right next to the opening of your intestines. Um, you know, much of this obviously can you know, be read as misinformation. Um, And other medication hacks include tricks people have developed to get their kids to take medicine that involves crushing up a pill, putting it into chocolate, freezing the chocolate, putting some sprinkles on it and giving the child that to eat, which, you know, could be a a useful tip for parents. But at the same time, it could also be risky because, you know, a child who's unsupervised might eat many of these without realizing there's drugs in them. There's always a risk of an overdose um, when you're tampering with medication like that. So, um, you know, medical experts often feel they're countering this type of misinformation on TikTok like a game of whack-a-mole. Once, new, once one trend is addressed, a new one has been born. And of all the videos that came across in medication hack TikTok, I really only found one that appeared to be from a reputable doctor who was offering some sound tips on how to alleviate nausea. But that was just one video in a sea of misinformation. So just curious what your thoughts are on this new corner of TikTok that I stumbled across. It reminds me of what uh, Dr. Brown said in Jack's interview with him earlier in the show, is that uh, not only do people need to pay attention to who they're getting advice from uh, on social media, uh, but also he called on uh, mental health professionals uh, to be more present in, in these uh, plat- on these platforms. And he kind of used the language that they, they owe it to you know patients and to the general public at large to show up here and correct a lot of these m- misconceptions. You know, what parent out there hasn't heard the advice, you know, that you can put some pills in, in applesauce, for instance. There are some uh, tips like this that are benign uh, and and are uh, have have kind of stood the test of time, so to speak. That you might see in like a you know Doctor Spock's guide to parenting type of thing, but again, it has to you have to pay attention to where you're getting that information from. And a lot of these these uh, tips here, like, as you point out, Lesha, seem questionable, uh, and they're a lot a lot more um, specious uh, than just uh, you know replacing the tic tacs uh, excuse me with with, with your with your uh, medicine that you're taking. So got to be be very careful here. Yeah, I always just think whenever we go through some of these that Lesha brings to the fore, like if you just think one level down the logic tree of what could go wrong or use just any ounce of common sense, I don't like you, you think that you would just be able to avoid some of these things like you talk about Lesha, like if you're crushing up a whole uh series of pills and putting them in brownies, obviously there's a risk if somebody like overdoses and you would think that that would keep you from doing in the first place. But obviously this is something that people have encountered. You also raised one too, which I I was curious if you can kind of uh, illuminate for us is like syringe hacks, which some nurses or people presenting as nurses were talking about the platform. Those seemed super dangerous by comparison. Do you want, could you just highlight that a little bit for our audience too? Yeah, there is, there is like a weird trend of a lot of videos um, with like tons of likes and views that were 
using this like syringe hack to crush a pill using a syringe and then mixing it with some kind of liquid or water, I guess, to dissolve it. And I guess, you know, some nurses use this trick, um, but there were a lot of TikTokers that were kind of ambiguously trying this trick and this trend with various pills. And it wasn't clear what type of medication they were doing it with. But yeah, there was a strangely large amount of videos using that syringe hack of crushing pills. It was uh, bizarre. Yeah. I mean, just, just even the idea that people have syringe, that normal people have syringes on hand to begin with, you don't even talk about the sterilization risk there, but yeah, I mean, just concerning. And obviously I want our audience to be able to travel and have a happy holidays and all that sort of stuff. I know that it's a burden. We were talking with our producer before we hopped on here of trying to sort out your pills for, if you're going to be gone for days or a week or something in a place that you're not normally there, you want to have your, your normal amount and adhere to your prescriptions and everything. But some of these things just seem to get so out of, out of hand, I guess you could say, and it's, you know, unfortunately, it seems like there's not enough HCPs or people standing up and saying, like, this is what you should be doing as opposed to doing this. But I'm, I'm glad that you've been able to highlight it for our audience. And hopefully from a messaging perspective, there are more marketers that uh, take note of this going forward. I want to end our show kind of bringing a full circle loop to the conversation that we had with Dr. Brown about mental health. Over the weekend, we lost former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who passed away at the age of 96 at her home in Plains, Georgia. Many will remember her, obviously, for being the former first lady married to former President Jimmy Carter, who is 98 years old. But she's also best known for her mental health advocacy throughout her public service career. While her husband was the governor of Georgia, Rosalind was a member of the Governor's Commission to Improve Services to the Mentally and Emotionally Handicapped. She subsequently served as active honorary chair of the President's Commission on Mental Health during the Carter administration, aiding in the passage of the Mental Health Systems Act of 1980. After they left the White House in 1985, Carter kicked off the Rosalind Carter Symposium on Mental Health Policy, which held annual forums for more than three decades involving talks from mental health advocates about how to improve access to behavioral health services, as well as address the cost aspect. And I think that for many people, regardless of your politics, they look at the Carters, both Jimmy and Rosalind, and the work that they did even after they were in the presidency in the White House on behalf of people, not only in the United States, but around the world is very commendable. And certainly hers on that front for mental health. I mean, it's one of the first things that people have been mentioning in headlines, other than the fact that she was first lady, that she was an uh, advocate for mental health awareness and access to these services across the country. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about mental health awareness now, but, you know, when you think about um, the time period that Rosalind Carter was being an advocate for mental health when it wasn't as frequently talked about and there were still a lot of stigmas around it, um, it is, you know, interesting to, to kind of look back on the history um, and how she was advocating at a time when it wasn't really talked about the way that it is now. So, um, you know, she really was kind of considered a transformational leader on that front. And, you know, always sad to see someone pass away who's, you know, made a difference, but um, a good time to sort of reflect on where, how far we've come, I guess, um, when it comes to mental health awareness as well. Yeah, I mean, she took up uh, the, the banner of mental health uh, in her home state and around the country at a time, as you said, when um, it, it was the stigma, uh, big stigma at the time. And so she obviously deserves a big, big time commendation uh, for, for her work there. And uh, of course, uh, with, with the act, uh, the Mental Health Systems Act that called for more community centers and important changes in health insurance coverage that uh, also to her credit. And 
unfortunately, we're still seeing a lot of health insurance companies uh, not abiding by the uh, the law of, of sort of uh, covering uh, mental health services. Um, I think some have called for stronger teeth uh, in, in that area, uh, and hopefully that that will improve um, as as more people start talking about it and, and start to go back to the Jack's interview with uh, Dr. Brown. But he pointed out that you know, like Michael Phelps uh, sort of cover of SI, you know, about 2015 or so, kind of was a turning point for more people to start talking about it more celebrities to start talking about. It. Now we talk about it as part of a routine, part of our conversations, which is great because we all, you know, have uh, our own, you know, struggles with this in, in one form or another. And, and so, but, um, you know, I think the sort of the last step of this is that we, you know, to bring this full circle, we need, we need proper reimbursement, proper coverage. So, um, but, but she's the progenitor of, of, of a lot of that. And uh, so kudos to, to Rosalind and may she rest in peace. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the MMNM podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's episode when we'll be joined by Kiora Pharmaceutical CEO Brian Strem. Have a happy Thanksgiving, everyone. That's it for this week. The MMNM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.